Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on 31st of October 2017 at approximately uh, 3.20 London time. As always, if you want to find out more about our podcasts or anything we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC. And follow us on Twitter at TERCUEL and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. So, now time for today's guest. It's my great pleasure and honour to welcome onto today's pod, Thomas Heghammer. Uh, Thomas is a Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Defence Research Establishment, FFI, and Adjunct Professor of Political Science at the University of Oslo. He's trained in Middle East Studies at Oxford University and Political Sciences in Paris. He has held fellowships at Harvard, Princeton, New York, and Stanford Universities and at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. His books and edited volumes include Jihad in Saudi Arabia, uh, The Mekan Rebellion, um, Saudi Arabia in Translation, Jihadi Culture, The Art and Social Practices of, of Militant Islamists, uh, and The Caravan, Abdullah Assam, The Arab Afghans, and The Origins of Global Jihad. He is currently writing a history of jihadism for Penguin Press, he also works on a few smaller projects, notably on jihadi culture, on the economic causes of jihadism, and on the migration of jihad, migration jihadism connection. Thomas, welcome to the pod, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So, how did you get involved in this area of research to begin with? Well, it was uh, largely a coincidence. Um, as I think it is for, for many pe people, uh, people's careers. I came out of um, Oxford in the spring of 2001 with a degree in Middle East Studies. And I was looking for anything, really, um, uh, re in research that was Middle East related. Um, and the only thing I got was this summer internship at this place called the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment in Oslo. Um, and there, uh, there was a, um, a t small uh, terrorism research project that had been set up a couple of year years previously uh, by uh, Brynjar Lea, who is now a professor at the University of Oslo. And, and he hired me in that summer and put me to work uh, on a report that looked at the kind of the, the, the consequences of uh, Western military interventions in the in the Middle East, and I was writing the case study of the Gulf War in 1991, and <clears throat> one of the key themes in that story uh, it was the uh, the unintended consequence of uh, that war, which was the the, the rise of, of of Bin Laden and Al Qaeda, which of course started protesting the American presence in Saudi Arabia that came uh, in connection with that war. So basically, to cut a long story short, um, I needed a job and I found this summer job and they, I was put to work on the Bin Laden network in the summer of 2001. And within this, um, 
within this uh, project and working for the Norwegian uh, Defence Research Establishment, we've seen a lot of highly influential researchers in our, in our area come out. Why do you think that it's had such an impact on, on our field, this, um, this research establishment? Oh, you mean the, 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 the group uh, in Oslo? Yes, oh. yeah. Oh, um, I think there are several reasons. One is that um, um, we, um, we, we were a group of people who had the language skills and the kind of the, 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 the area uh, knowledge of the Middle East um, to, to work with primary sources jihadism and there were very few research communities that had that uh, when 9-11 happened and the reason why the few other places like that was the, the polarization in academia the fact that uh, basically the the area studies departments were quite left-leaning and were reluctant to touch security topics in general and terrorism in particular um, so what you had is a situation in most part of the, the Western world where the people who knew the languages and the culture didn't want to do terrorism research. Well, and and those who wanted to do terrorism research, they didn't have the the didn't have Arabic and and Middle East kind of regional knowledge. And but we happen to have this group of people kind of in the, in, in in the middle who 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 had the area studies background and who didn't mind studying terrorism and that gave us a head start in the early 2000s because we were among very very few people who could study the you know the propaganda and primary the primary sources of al-qaeda in arabic uh, and and go on the jihadi forums etc and kind of track activities there as they unfolded so i think that was the, that, that is a key reason the other main reason I think is has been stable funding that, that, that we have been lucky to enjoy um, and a basically strategic um, uh, direction and strategic f funding um, we've, we've known all, all, all along that that, that that our Institute would basically invest invest in this research for for a long period of time and so we could we could um, take a, few, a bit more risk than perhaps other other research centers yeah have. and and those those two elements combined can be uh, can, can come together and bring some some really worthwhile and uh, in-depth research that can that can understand the nuances behind what's been said and the importance of it as well at this time um as as all our listeners know i've i've asked each of our contributors to say what kind of research was influencing them at the time and you've listed listed three uh, three pieces the first one being uh, jihad the trail of political islam or the trial of political islam by gilles capel what was it that influenced you uh, from this piece what did you, what was it that you were taking from this well capel's book was uh influential because it was by far and away the most extensive and detailed account of the history of the jihadi movement uh, up until 9-11. Uh, so when I kind of decided to to to, to, study, to, to, to start working on jihadism uh, in a serious way that autumn, 
I looked around at the literature, and this was this book by 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 Gilles Capel was was um, in my view by far and away the best one around. He um, um, and I think it's a book that kind of stands up pretty well even today, even though I mean we, we know a lot more about the the various cases that he describes in the book now. Uh, but it, it, I think he 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 does a very good job at explaining kind of both the continuities, the kind of ideological continuities in the movement, but also the various local specificities and the you know, the regional local dynamics that shape you know any group, you know particular particular groups um, uh, evolution uh, at any given time. So it had and it really kind of reflected the value of good area knowledge and I took away I guess from from that that you in order to understand these groups you have to understand the countries and, and, and the kind of basically the, the cultural and political landscape in which they operate mm. so uh, that and that is also why um, uh, when I decided to do a PhD I also chose to do it or I had the, <laughs> was lucky to have the opportunity to do it with with Gilles Capel I kind of sought him out largely because of this book uh, and um, I, I did it um, basically in um, kind of an air, with an area studies uh, from an area studies angle, um, and um, uh, so I ended up doing this uh, PhD project on jihadism in in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and this was then um, published as as a book. Uh, if I'm right, jihad in, in Saudi Arabia, violence and pan-Islamism uh, since 1979. So what was it um, What was it that you were trying to achieve in this, in this research, focusing purely on Saudi Arabia? Well, I was basically trying to fill in a black hole in, the, in our knowledge at the time, um, because uh, in the autumn of 2001, when kind of everyone was scraping around for information and insight on what had just struck the U.S., uh, it was pretty clear that Saudi Arabia was a crucial um, part of the puzzle in that we could see that there were lots of people, basically, m members of Al-Qaeda who, who had come from Saudi Arabia. We could also see that a lot of the money that had been going to these groups had come from Saudi Arabia and its neighbors. And perhaps more, most importantly, we saw that most of the most influential ideologues were based in Saudi Arabia. So, so, so basically, Al-Qaeda was getting a lot of different, you know, important different things from, from, from Saudi Arabia, and yet we knew almost nothing about the Islamist scene inside the kingdom because it had been virtually closed off to, to researchers. Uh, up until 2003, it was extremely difficult for uh, social scientists, um, or kind of basically anyone who works on the contemporary Middle East, to, to go to Saudi Arabia and do research there. They would allow, they would they, they'd let in petroleum engineers and kind of business people at, on a regular basis, but but people who worked on, the, on kind of contemporary society were normally not not let in, and so um, I saw that there was all this stuff going on in in, in Saudi um, that was relevant for for understanding Al Qaeda, uh, and we knew nothing about it. So I and then I had the 
the the the, the luck the luck and the fortune to to get the, uh, a chance to go to to Saudi and, and do field work. And again, this was thanks to my supervisor Ril Kepel at the time, who had um, um, met with Prince Turkil uh, Prince Turkil Faisal uh, um, in not too long after 9/11, and, and Prince Turkey had 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 suggested to uh, to to Kapel that he um, um, send students there to come look around basically and and, and so um, uh, and I was one of uh, a few people a few few Capel students that were able to, to to go so I I I did field work in in in, in Saudi um, uh, sort of one to two months a year from 2004 to 2008. And so what exactly did this field work entail? Um, it was um, basically, it was, I mean, it was basically a pretty straightforward sort of a documentation effort of, of uh, speaking to as many people as I could who had either been part of radical communities in Saudi or had been Kind of observing them, um, uh, bear in mind that we knew practically nothing about the kind of the internal composition of the radical Islamist movement in the in the kingdom. So it was basically kind of a big mapping exercise and a kind of a historiograph historiographical exercise of getting basically collecting witness, kind of um, uh, yeah, informant kind of observations and collecting documents. Um, I spent weeks in libraries just photocopying you know, rare and you know important um, primary sources. I went around the country chasing down uh, ex-militants and so on. So it was kind of a, my objective was basically to sort of retrace the history of um, jihadism in Saudi and kind of answer, I guess the the questions I was addressing was. Um, was why uh, it had grown so big, why this jihadi movement had grown so big in, in Saudi Arabia, um, and, <clears throat> um, and 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 secondarily, if it had been so big, why why was there why had there been so little violence inside the kingdom until this 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 campaign broke out in two thousand and three. So basically, we had this kind of curious, you know, variation in the behavior of the, the jihadi movement in the kingdom that that nobody had really explained, and I I tried to do that. And like, we'll get on to what your what your core findings were in a second. But what was the reaction when you went and you were doing this field work when you were, as you were explaining, the it was quite close to researchers prior to this, uh, especially on this kind of topic. Uh, so what, what reaction did you get um, during your fieldwork? Oh, it was very easy fieldwork, actually. Um, much easier than uh, it had been in Egypt. Uh, I'd, I'd done some field work there as, as a master student. Um, and um, I also had um, yeah, I tried to do some work on kind of Islamists in, in, in Egypt in, in 2003, and it was very difficult because the Egyptian scene, and I think this goes for many of the other neighboring countries there as well, it, it had basically been saturated with 
researchers from the West coming in and asking questions. Um, people have, had been coming for decades doing fieldwork in, in the area, and and so uh, you, you basically you couldn't get anything you know, substantially new from any of your interviewees in a place like Cairo, unless you, of course, unless you spent years there and really established close relationship with, with, with people people there. Um, I think this was basically kind of the, the locals were sick and tired of outsiders coming in and doing research. I think that that that, that, that made and also in 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 Egypt and in other countries, you, the the government interfered with your research and made it harder uh, to to reach kind of the, the the most interesting people. Whereas in Saudi, um, I was. Kind of, it was like the first archaeologist on a virgin site. There'd been almost nobody there before me, um, uh, and so when I came and I when I called up people, they were like they were they were keen to speak because they had been basically, you know, sitting around and thinking about these topics and discussing them between themselves for a long time, sometimes for years, but had never had the chance to talk to talk about it with outsiders, and so. I felt that on some occasions, and I was sort of, it was like a, a dam that burst, and they just kind of unloaded all this information on me. And uh, and um, the also perhaps surprisingly, the government didn't interfere very much in in my uh, research, and, and and I never really got the sense that Saudi security sort of obstructed my um, activities or intimidated people that I spoke to neither before nor after my interviews with them and this is I think um, not I, I, would, I would contend that it's not me being naive um, because I think we know now that the that Saudi Arabia at least at that time wasn't the same type of police state that the Arab republics were Saudi Arabia was, of course, a very strict and authoritarian country, but it governed, it basically it kept population under control, not so much by physical coercion as much as, as sort of basically other more social sanctions. Society was policed in a very different way from Egypt or Syria or Libya or some of these other, these other very, very um, blatant police states. So. Line is um, it was remarkably easy to do fieldwork there and incredibly productive. And so, what do you feel that obviously you had so much data to trawl through there? How did you come to to pick out what your core conclusions were, and what were these? Uh, what do you feel the core findings from this fieldwork that are displayed in this uh, in this PhD in this monograph? Well, I mean the. My, I, I worked basically inductively. Um, I didn't start off with a set of, you know, a theory or a set of hypotheses that I then tested against uh, data that I collected. I I collected the data first and kind of played around with it and kind of created uh, um, you know timelines and uh, lists of you know bio biographical sketches, um, kind of you know. Playing around with the 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 the, the evidence and kind of and, and looking for patterns in it and and um, using 
those sort of, the, you know, and then taking those those patterns uh, that I thought I was seeing to generate hypotheses that I then go back to a test against new um, uh, data. So basically, you know, in, in inductively working inductively to build um, uh, an understanding of the the, the, the process that uh, had. Well, the processes that had shaped the um, evolution of the jihadi movement in 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 in, in Saudi. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in the what what did I find? Well, um, the uh, I found many things, of course, uh, but I guess the main one was that uh, Saudi Islamism was kind of two things. And I, I so I get one contribution I think I made was to disaggregate two important uh, dimensions of Saudi Islamism, two, or basically two types of Saudi Islamism. One being what we call Wahhabism, which is sort of the the, the kind of the state doctrine. This is the the, you know, the, the, the beliefs of the clergy in the kingdom. And the one that the, the government um, propagates, and, and so on. The 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 other one um, is what I call pan-Islamism, um, and uh, this uh, is a different animal, a different sort of ideological phenomenon. In that, uh, it's um, much more explicitly political um, than. Wahhabism, and it also had a different sort of uh, constituency, this different type of support base. So basically, in Saudi, you had two types of, of Islamists in a way. You had Wahhabis who 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 are they're ultra conservatives, but they're they're not very political. In fact, they they tell ordinary believers not to worry about politics, leave politics to the to the Lead to the ruler, and so it, it kind of tells the believers to be preoccupied with their personal religious practice um, and follow that to the tiniest letter. But but uh, whereas the the pan Islamists were you know had a you know were much more political, were much more interested in particularly international politics, and they had this view of. Uh, the world as one in which the, 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 the all Muslims around the world are part of one are kind of one people one ummah as they as they mm -hmm. say and that this ummah is under a systematic attack from all sides from you know, by by non-Muslims and this leads them to taking a, a keen interest in any conflict around the world in which uh, there is a Muslim side so uh, uh, be it in Afghanistan in the 80s, or in Bosnia, or in Chechnya, or, or, or elsewhere, and typically, uh, so typically, what you see in, 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 a, in when when a conflict broke out somewhere in the world, you'd see that the the the, the Wahhabis in Saudi, they were, they were sort of pay lip service to to this, but they wouldn't really do anything about it. They would go on go go on with their normal business. But the the pan-Islamists would mobilize. Um, 
in a serious way. They would often, you know, start with collecting money, and some of them would go abroad as foreign fighters to join these these struggles. Um, and so, what I found was that, and the the the, the um, all of the the militancy, the kind of the, the violent stuff that we, you know, Al Qaeda and all and foreign fighting and all the rest, basically came from this pan-Islamist strain of Saudi Saudi Islamism, and um, was both, I guess, ideologically and sociologically quite disconnected from from, from Wahhabism. So, um, so. Uh, so that was one insight, and the, and the other, I guess, insight was that um, um, that the sort of that the jihadi, the Saudi jihadi movement was, which was an offshoot of the this sort of pan-Islamist uh, community, that this had been this had grown particularly strong in Saudi because the government let them alone, because they were given uh, basically. Political space to operate, so that so jihadis uh, could operate more freely in Saudi than they could in most countries in the region, up until um, 2003. So, um, well, I really there were two stages there. Uh, a first stage up until about 1992, where jihadis had kind of full freedoms. Uh, and uh, they were even subsidized uh, to go to Afghanistan in the 80s. Uh, and then from 92 to 2003, they were basically uh, allowed to go abroad and fight wherever they wanted, including to go to uh, Al-Qaeda training camps in, in Afghanistan in the late 90s. And the, so, and, the, and the reason, I argue in the book, is that the, the reason why the government let this ha happen is that they kind of, they they were afraid to to confront this movement and to crack down on it because they would be attacked. There would be a political cost to it. Be attacked for being unsolidary with suffering Muslims abroad. So because these jihadis were kind of they were they were um, coming from this pan-Islamist um, community. They would, you know, anyone who kind of clamped down on them would, they, they would attack vehemently on kind of, uh, and kind of guilt trip and shame whoever whoever attacked them um, for not being, um, not caring enough about suffering Muslims abroad. So the government of Saudi Arabia kind of, they they basically held off and 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 let and let the jihadis alone as long as they didn't do anything in inside the the kingdom. And so what you had in the 90s was a situation where people would go abroad as foreign fighters as they wished, um, and they kept their hand, they kept away from Saudi. They didn't do anything in Saudi, um, and as long as they did that, they could they could operate freely. And that's how the there were so many Saudi jihadis um, around 9/11. And how has this changed um, it, this situation in Saudi Arabia? How has this changed since you were doing this field work? Since uh, this was all done. So it's changed uh, dramatically, and the main reason is that Al Qaeda ended up attacking uh, Saudi Arabia in 2003. So, uh, and this was a consequence of the 
of 9-11 in a way. I mean, because you had 9-11 and then uh, the, the U.S. and its ally invaded Afghanistan and evicted uh, al-Qaeda. And uh, put very simply, all these people who had been in the training camps in Afghanistan, they needed something to do. And uh, bin Laden sent them, sent the Saudi ones back home to, to launch a campaign. And, um, uh, and this campaign uh, you know, broke out in the spring of 2003, and it involved a series of very uh, deadly bombings uh, in Riyadh and elsewhere. Um, and there was, in 2003 and four. it was pretty tense in, in, in Saudi. Um, uh, and until they kind of they finally got a hand handle on the on the this insurgency around 2005, um, but it really was a big shock to the to the government, and um, it changed the government's policy toward radical Islamists. Um, Bear in mind here that even as late as 2002, the government has been largely in denial about this. You have statements from very senior officials in Saudi, uh, you know, doubting you know, Al-Qaeda's links to various you know, Al-Qaeda operations around the world, and, and kind of and downplaying the, the, the level of Al-Qaeda activity inside, inside Saudi Arabia. That changed, but that changed completely in 2003-04 when the violence hit them. And since then, Saudi Arabia has um, wholeheartedly uh, fought uh, Al-Qaeda and similar groups. Um, and if they have not always succeeded, if, they, if there have periodically been violence, it's uh, not for lack of trying or lack of, of intention on the government side, but more um, lack of capability. But even the capability has become very strong because uh, they, Saudi Arabia has has um, obviously a lot of money has had a lot of money to throw at the problem, and they've they've invested huge sums in surveillance systems and in the security services, and they've gotten help as well from Western security services, basically uh, intelligence advisors from the U.S. and the U.K. and probably other countries too, that were sent to Saudi in 2003 to help. To help the Saudis build build a, a good uh, security service. Now, uh, so so and, th and that has that has made uh, Saudi Arabia a safer place or or, or more in, inhospitable place for for terrorists. But it has also uh, made Saudi Arabia more authoritarian because so what happened um, was that Saudi kind of built this surveillance instrument or, or, or apparatus and it can obviously be used for more than just surveilling terrorists. It can also be used to keep a lid on other types of opposition activists, democratic ones in particular. And and um, it's pretty clear to me that um, the intelligence apparatus that they built up in the in the wake of the Al-Qaeda campaign were later on deployed on other violent opposition which is unfortunate, mm. and we saw this very clearly uh, uh, um, around the Arab Spring so in 2011, 2012, um, w w when um, they were able to really kind of nip 
things in the bud. There, there was there were stirrings in in Saudi, and there were people who tried to mobilize using social media. But because the government had kind of a full control of the internet and, and of social media, they could kind of identify troublemakers early and kind of defuse the the, the situation. So. Um, so yeah, Saudi Arabia has become safer, but it has also become more authoritarian. Yeah, and there are the there are the the obvious um, human rights issues that go with that. There are the obvious risks uh, that go with that outside of what we're talking about uh, today. Um, and you mentioned there you you were talking about your uh, your research on Saudi Arabia and the, the role of foreign fighters. Uh, going from Saudi Arabia elsewhere, but your research has gone on in more recent years to look at foreign fighters uh, go, coming from the West, and I'm thinking specifically of your of your piece, "Should I Stay or Should I Go?" Explaining variation in Western jihadist choice between uh, domestic and foreign fighting. Um, for our listeners, what is this piece about, um, and how did you go about? Uh, tackling this issue of why uh, why someone would choose to become a foreign fighter uh, versus uh, someone who is operating domestically right so this uh, the kind of the, the the seed for this research uh, comes from my, my work on Saudi Arabia because one of the main uh, one of the one of the I think yeah, main in, insights from my work on on Saudi jihadism was that uh, jihadism is several things, and um, uh, I, I noticed that there was a, a difference in, in, among those Saudi jihadists who, um, who traveled abroad and who, who who only fought in in kind of in conflict zones. And, and didn't engage in international terrorism. Uh, these were people like Khattab, who was a Saudi who went to Chechnya in the mid mid 90s and became the leader of the foreign fighters there. Um, uh, and 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 then you had also the then you had um, jihadis who who were quite happy to use international terrorism in in, in outside the conflict zones and to do basically out of theater operations and here of course you have bin laden and all the al qaeda members so and i noticed pretty early on you know in 2003 and 4 that there were these two types of activists the, the in saudi you know we, you might call them the khatabists versus the bin ladenists but it really was foreign fighters versus um, international terrorists. In the in the in the in the Saudi book, I use and an yet another type of terminology. I, I call them the foreign fighters, classical jihadis, and I and the, and the international terrorists, global jihadis. But it's the same idea. There, there, there are these two different ways of two different patterns of behavior. Um, and uh, and incidentally, the the, the 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 former, the foreign fighting one, is much more common. Uh, more people engage in it than in international terrorism, and also it's pretty clear from the ideological text that that the for, foreign fighter fighting or classical jihadism is considered legitimate by many more people, uh, and, and so it's basically a, a less controversial, more popular activity than international uh, terrorism. So I took basically so th this is what kind of um, brought me. 
to do research on, on, on foreign fighters in general, because in much of the work at the time, we're talking mid-2000s, late-2000s now, uh, people were conflating, people were over-aggregating uh, jihadists, and, and uh, it was not very widespread to make this distinction between foreign fighters and international terrorists. And I wanted to, to drill into that kind of issue and, 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 and kind of argue that this distinction was very significant. Um, and uh, so I, I did that in various ways. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and one of the ways I did it was to look at the, um, look at the, look at the West uh, and, and, uh, and to, um, and because there too you had a similar distinction. You had people who uh, went abroad to fight in various conflicts and who, who, who seemed to basically um, uh, stay there and fight fight there. And, yet, and then you had others uh, who attacked in in the West instead of going going out or, or, or uh, after they've, they've, they've been out. So you had these two different behaviors, atta attacking abroad and attacking at home. And <clears throat> this raised the kind of, to me, the relatively obvious question, why is that? Why do some do one and the one and others do the other. And in, in, in retrospect, it's, it seems pretty simple and straightforward uh, and, 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 and uh, yeah, pretty obvious. Uh, uh, but it wasn't really at the time. I mean, we have to remember here that even as late as 2010-11, you know, people making, you know, making the, you know, claiming that foreign fighters are, you know, are different or perhaps less dangerous than, than international terrorists was controversial. There was a tendency in at least part of the academy and in much of the policy circle, especially in the US, to view all jihadists, all Western jihadists as one thing and, and as equally dangerous. And, and so you had a, a tendency, for example, to <clears throat> just to consider you know, Somali Americans who wanted to go and join Shabaab they were often described as kind of as in the same with the same terms as as basically Al Qaeda terrorists, or they, they were basically in these cases of you know when they would arrest someone at the airport on the way to Somalia, they were, these were these were described in the press and sometimes even coded for in 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 academic data sets as terrorism cases as, as kind of incidents of violence. They were clearly not. There were, there were incidents of travel uh, to join a foreign, you know, another place. So, uh, uh, as late as 2010, this distinction really wasn't agreed upon. Um, and uh, if my article did one thing, it was to kind of end that discussion. I think uh, pretty. I mean, once and for all, I think, and 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 to 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 point out that really you have this, you have these two quite distinct behaviors, um, foreign fighting and, um, and attacking at home, and, they, and, they, and they, um, they're systematic enough to be considered you know, different phenomena. That doesn't mean, of course, that individuals can't switch from one to the other, or that uh, someone who goes abroad to, become, to, to fight in a conflict doesn't, you know, doesn't, cannot later attack at home. In fact, as I show in the article, 
they're, they're, a foreign fighter is, is on average more likely to end up attacking at home than someone uh, who has not been abroad. But, but the, the big insight, the big kind of point in that article is to show that foreign fighting and terrorism, and terrorism are two different things. Um, so, um, uh, and then, of course, uh, I think the other reason why that article became um, uh, um, widely circulated was, of course, that it came out around the time, around the, the beginning, at the beginning of um, <coughs> the Syria war. Um, and you had huge numbers of, of um, people going, especially from Europe, uh, to, to Syria. And um, here I was having written this article that saying that um, uh, foreign fighters uh, are uh, they are not the same as international terrorists. So, the, so uh, they we should perhaps not consider them, uh, you know, as as dangerous as uh, kind of uh, Al Qaeda members. But at the same time. Um, they're they're more dangerous than people who have not been abroad. So, you know, there, it was basically you know it provided some numbers and some uh, kind of claims to specify the risk associated with foreign fighting, which I think some policymakers makers found found useful. Yeah, and now, it's it's this it's this necessity to understand the nuance, the heterogeneity uh, of these actors. Um, it's one of the core messages uh, coming across throughout your interview and throughout other interviews we've done in this podcast series at the moment. And it's something that I feel that terrorism studies as a whole, it hasn't been treating, it hasn't been dealing with well. It's, as you said, in, in academic data sites, treating all of these individuals as the same. Um, and you talk in this, in this piece about the role that opportunity, training and norms play. Uh, could you go in? Uh, could you explain to our listeners uh, what was your thinking behind, and what, why was it that it was these three factors that were were focused on? You mean uh, as to um, as to why why the the choice would be made uh, versus uh, being a foreign fighter versus right. uh, an international terrorist? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so these are basically kind of hypotheses. To, uh, to account for the um, uh, the, the fact that more people go abroad than attack at home. So that was the first part of the article, basically is establishing that foreign fighting is much more popular, much more common than domestic terrorism. Um, and so uh, I was basically so I kind of I. I, I Identified what I thought was the kind of the, the, the most, the strongest contenders for explaining this, and one was uh, opportunity. And this is the kind of the, this was the tip, the, the sort of the classical counter arguments, counter argument by those who tended to see all jihadists as the same. They would they would argue that um, um, the uh, the people would. That that they were all that the, that the people who went abroad they were just as kind of uh, dangerous or, or or malicious maliciously inclined as those who attacked at home. It was just that they 
you know, were not able to operate at home, or they, it was particularly easy for them at some point to go to go abroad. And so, the, so the reason, so basically saying, it was just the circumstances that made some of them go out, go abroad, and not attack at home. But really, in principle, all so, so that 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 hypothesis is saying all else equal, they were all attack at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and um, and the, the the training hypothesis is, is similar, perhaps perhaps more even more um, conspiratorial in a way. It's saying you know suggesting that well, the reason people go abroad is not that they don't want to attack at home. It's just that they want to go abroad so they can attack home harder later at a later stage. Yeah. So it's an investment. Uh, with a view to inflicting more damage, uh, and, and and yet again to kind of in, you know endorse the view that all jihadists are the same and they want the same, which is to attack the. <clears throat> and um, but but here I I, I show that, that you know that that um, um, you can you can you you can quite I think plausibly demonstrate that that. Uh, um, most people, when you know, they they express different types of motivations when when they leave, and it's it's just just bit, this just isn't evidence enough to 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 suggest that most people go most foreign fighters have have the intention to. It's just a guess, and the, the, the evidence just isn't there. The evidence is leaning towards the them. Having no such no intention to attack at home when they leave, um, then of course some people develop that motivation later on. But that's a different issue. And then the third uh, uh, hypothesis to, to to account for the skewed distribution, the, the the fact that more people go abroad than attack at home, um, is norms. And this is the one I kind of argue is the more important. Uh, and this is the idea that um, foreign fighting is considered by Islamists as less controversial, as more legitimate, um, and it's pretty. This is pretty intuitive. I mean, it, th- that notion ex- extends beyond Islamism. It's it's um, you can you know I think it's pretty intuitive to most kind of liberally minded uh, you know, Europeans and Americans that it's. You know, to 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 fight as a guerrilla fighter, you know, in a war uh, of national liberation, and and you know, and, and fire, you know, wear a uniform and fire against uh, other, you know, an enemy in uniform, you know, with conventional weapons. That is something completely different from um, attacks on civilians in, uh, you know, in a country that is not at war, you know. Blowing up people on the subway in, in London or something—it's completely different from from fighting uh, in the jungle in Colombia. These are these are different things, and 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 it's um, widely considered, I think, more legitimate to uh, uh, to 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 fight you know, in, you know in conventional with sort of conventional or semi-conventional means in a conflict zone than it is to kill civilians in a country at peace. So it's the same idea, and it, it, that same normative distinction is there in jihadism or Islamism. Uh, it, and and um, I show this in the, in the article, and 
um, and, and I think it basically accounts for why uh, um, most most uh, Islamists, when they radicalize and they want to start to start doing something, start taking action, they they do they 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 seek out ways to becoming a foreign fighter, uh, and, and not uh, attack a person because that is considered more legitimate. It's kind of less theologically risky uh, uh, carrying out a terrorist attack. And with all these findings in mind, and with um the necessity to understand these distinct differences. How do you evaluate how uh, Western democracies have been dealing with uh, those foreign fighters who are returning or who are potentially uh, returning to their countries? Western democracies have handled the foreign fighter problem reasonably well and uh, and better by the year, I would say. Um, uh, now, um, the challenge, and then the reason we should care about the foreign fighters is that, is that the process of being, or the process of foreign fighting radicalizes you. So if you have been to a war zone and, and spent time with a radical Islamist militia, you are on average more likely to have developed uh, uh, views so radical that you might be inclined to do, you know, International terrorist operations, or basically, or attacking in, in in the West, doesn't mean that everyone develops that motivation. But but you're more likely to people who go abroad as foreign fighters are more likely to do so than someone who doesn't. Someone who stays at home, for example. So there's something about you know the exposure to war, uh, the socialization in a, in a, in a in an ideological organization. Um, uh, the participation in violent acts, for example, if you're with, with Islamic State, you know, you may have been, as a foreign fighter, forced to, you know, perpetrate atrocities, cut off people's heads, something like that. These are disin disinhibiting acts that kind of, in most people, you know, will, will make you more violent. And uh, for this reason, um, uh, we should be... Um, uh, careful. We should be uh, aware. We should be um, um, careful with foreign fighters because some of them uh, may have uh, radicalized to the point of wanting to carry out terrorist attacks in the West. So we we cannot assume that all of them um, uh, have stayed at the kind of foreign fighter stage that, that that they where they kind of prefer. Kind of clean fighting abroad over over terrorism at home. So uh, uh, now, um, what uh, governments are now doing is, is is trying to find a middle middle ground between um, uh, kind of uh, being too naive and too strict. Because the problem is, of course, that you know a minority of the Foreign fighters have radicalized to the point of wanting to attack in the West, but we don't know who they are. So what do you do? Do you kind of let them all back with no, with few questions asked, and hope for the best, and assume that the that that minority is so small that the, they won't they won't make much of a difference? 
that is that, that the problem there is that well you know that minority can turn out to be bigger than you thought and they can do really bad things to you or do you treat them super suspiciously and and consider them all as potential terrorists that's also problematic because from what we know on the historical data um, most of them are not going to be motivated to be you know, to do terrorist attacks in, in 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 the West so you risk you know by treating them all as international terrorists you you, you risk um, uh, punishing them you know many of them more severely than they deserve and that in itself may radicalize them so you may you know may become a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, and besides uh, it's, it's it's expensive to sort of uh, you know, prosecute and detain everyone. Mm. Um, so you want to find strike a middle ground. Find a find a system or a mechanism that allows you to do triage of these people and helps you identify the more dangerous ones. And that is, I think, what most countries have in in the West have tried to do over the past few 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 years. And they seem to be doing a pretty good job because. Um, there have been relatively few attacks in the West by for, for, by for, former Syria travelers. Now, um, there have been some, of course, and some of the bigger ones, like the Paris attacks or the, the Brussels bombings, um, were perpetrated by people who had been to Syria, or involved at least some people who, who had been to, to Syria. So um, there have been what we call kind of blow there has been blowback from the Syria foreign fighter contingent but the blowback hasn't been as large as uh, many feared in the beginning and I think that is basically because of our own protective measures it's because the reason that the blowback has been small is that governments have put the most dangerous guys off taken them off the street and put them in prison or they have otherwise or, or, or that many of the most dangerous guys have, have, have um, have been uh, killed in action in Syria or Iraq or otherwise been incapacitated. So um, it's because we were on the lookout and we were, it's because we were vigilant to the foreign fighter threat from the beginning of the Syria war that there haven't there hasn't been as much blowback as uh, some people feared. Yeah, yeah and, and in that respect, uh, the the policy has been has been quite successful. I was just going to to end by by saying that the 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 big kind of problem, the big systemic problem that the Syria war exposed was that we lack a legal framework for handling um, foreign fighting. Uh, so, so when you get a mass exodus like like we did in 2013, 14. Um, um, there are gaps in in the, the, the say, to, say so Europe basically doesn't have a unified policy on this. Different countries have different approaches, and so it's so people kind of uh, are able to 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 to, to go. And so it, it it it's been it was more easy, I think, than it should have been to go to Syria in the early years of the Syria war, and that is a failure, I, I guess, of our um, uh, systems, yeah. and and for those 
for those of you interested in listening about um, those legal challenges, I would uh, encourage you to listen to our previous episodes with uh, George Lasmar and Javier Argamenez when they go where they go in detail about this. One of the things um, that really has always impressed me about your research, Thomas, is is that you're striving for an understanding, an understanding that isn't just based on. Uh, on the violence that is taking place. You want to see what's going on around this and to try and get a holistic picture. And I think this is most evident uh, in your most recent edited collection, uh, Jihadi Culture, the Arts and Art and Social Practices of Militant Islamists. This is, this is something very different to a lot, of, a lot of books in this area and to a lot of the research that, was, that will have been talked about in this series. Um, what was your inspiration behind doing this book, uh, behind editing this book, and um, and what do you feel from the from the chapters that you brought together? Uh, what did what did you achieve with this? Yeah, so um, jihadi culture, the book jihadi culture looks at um, uh, the things jihadis do when they don't fight, uh, and it's the music or the poetry or uh, the dream interpretation, their weeping, all this sort of artsy, soft stuff that doesn't appear to have a, a an obvious function. Um, and um, the inspiration um, came really, I think, from reading outside the discipline. I was this was got the idea in sort of 2009 ish. Um, and at that time, of course, I'd been studying jihadism for many years, uh, and you know, reading lots and lots of biographies and accounts. I kind of had a, you know, a pretty good, good, good grasp, good, good, good knowledge of, of kind of, yeah, jihadism and life inside these, these groups. But I'd never really noticed um, all these cultural things, or to, or to kind of. Um, paid much attention to them until I started reading outside the discipline, particularly in, in behavioral economics uh, and also in, 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 a, in a part of, you know, of sociology that's called signaling theory. And, and what these kind of fields have in common is that they, they try to make sense of apparent irrationality. They, they, they um, kind of take uh, uh, you know, human very human behaviors that make little sense uh, at first sight, and kind of explain them. And uh, <clears throat> um, and so I had that sort of that at the back of my head, and that kind of sensitized me to you know apparent irrational behavior in the jihadi world. And I started seeing all these things. I started kind of looking at the the poetry and the and the music that I had, that I had, that I had, that I knew was there. I just started looking at it with new eyes, with a different, in a different way. And I started. It occurred to me that, look, it it, it makes no sense. These are hunted men. They're they're they have they should you know they they have limited time. The, the security services are, are are coming for them. They have little money. Um, uh, they should be what we call. Utility maximizers. They should spend all of their time on obviously useful things, and training, or fundraising, or recruiting, or um, 
uh, something else uh, that's you know, clearly useful. But and yet they they waste a lot of time on this on this fluffy stuff that doesn't seem to do anything useful. And that is a that is a puzzle. Um, and and um, I also noticed this striking contrast between, on the one hand, their sort of their brutality, their willingness to use um, gruesome violence on the one hand, and the softness of some of these uh, activities uh, on, on the other. That they, you know, the, the weeping and the poetry and the uh, and all the all all, uh, all the rest of the sort of artistic sensitivity. The, that that too was really really puzzling. And um, so I decided to explore this cultural domain more, um, uh, knowing, of course, that you know, very little work had been done on this. That is to say, there had been work on individual elements of, of culture, some work on, on, on jihadi poetry, some work on dreaming, but nothing synthetical, nothing that would bring it all together. So I decided to, to do that, and I recruited a, a fantastic team of contributors for the for this um, edited volume. Um, the reason I did it edited did an edited volume is that each of these elements of culture is very complex. You need uh, a really high degree of specialist knowledge to understand it. I mean, if you want to study jihadi poetry, that really you, to do that you really have to know your classical Arabic poetry. If you want to study uh, the Anashid, these are a cappella hymns that they sing, you really need to know your your musicology and uh, also your 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 Arabic classical poetry, by the way, because Anashid are basically poems sung. So um, I, I yeah recruited this this, this team and and um, the book basically it doesn't go very far in. Analysis, or in terms of proposing, uh, kind of uh, putting forward a, a causal argument, it's more a descriptive effort to um, to kind of describe the key, some of the key elements of jihadi culture, explain, you know, explain to people what it is, what it consists of, you know, the history uh, of each, um, and what we see, what we don't see. That kind of thing, so that we have a basis, I think, with this book for doing more research into into what the culture does, or uh, why it's there, and, and how it affects behavior, and those sort of causal questions. That is some of those are some of the things I hope to do work on uh, in, in in the future. But um, so, but the main, I guess, the main contribution here is to kind of hi or highlight this ignored dimension of uh, militant activity, and it really is, I think, relevant for uh, for uh, groups outside the jihadi movement. You can you can study the culture of pretty much any military organization, uh, be it the far left or the far right or the, or or, or um, nationalist separatist militias or even our own militaries. You can study the culture of uh, because all of all military organizations have their own. Culture. They have their own. Most of them have their own music. They have their own kind of literary traditions. They have their own rituals, their own social practices and codes, etc., etc. So, um, uh, so um, 
it's the it's an it's a perspective of what kind of a, a way of looking at militancy uh, that um, has a that can travel far and 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 um, I, I'm really hoping that people will pick this up and apply it to to non-jihadi groups as well. I think there is the, the things to be to be learned from it. Yeah, I definitely think there's scope for it. I find it, I find it a really a really fascinating book and really a worthwhile contribution. It's 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 a rarity. It's something original uh, that's out there that. And there is need for that descriptive piece at the beginning before we can really get in depth about seeing what the true relevance is. Um, and you mentioned about this, uh, about the irrationality here. And would I be right in saying that this, this was was influenced by the the piece by uh, Dan O'Reilly, uh, predictably irrational: the hidden forces that shape our decisions. Um, and if so, how was it that this piece uh, shaped your thinking in regards to this irrationality, as you described it? Yeah, so the, the, that book was kind of an. It was, I think, it was the first book I read in the you know behavioral economics uh, field, and it really sort of. Uh, uh, opened my eyes uh, to the to the various sort of to, various, to the systematic ways in which we make decisions in a in, in an imperfect imperfect way, um, and I guess the, the kind of the what it did was to the, the the context here the background here bear in mind was this long-standing debate. In terrorism studies, over the role of ideology, uh, as opposed to material forces, typically you know economic forces, and there had been this you know long, um, I guess, cold war, <laughs> sometimes hard between uh, those who, typically those who work on small, highly ideological groups like Al Qaeda, on the one hand, who who could see. You know, had this sense that ideology must be important here, or important in, in explaining militancy. Uh, on on the one hand, and then on the other hand, people who study you know, the larger militias, typically in the, often based in the civil war field, who emphasize uh, you know material explanations, kind of economic uh, explanations for. Participation in violence, or for why groups choose particular strategies over others. Um, so um, um, there was this, um, and, and and of course uh, this this kind of debate had never really been solved. And I guess it still hasn't really been been solved. Um, but the point here is um, that um, the, the the behavioral economics literature kind of staked out a third way for me. It's a, it, it kind of taught, it kind of made me realize that it doesn't have to be either ideological or you know kind of uh, materially rational. You know, the idea here is you know, because if something is ideological, it's kind of given by norms, so it's really kind of. In some ways, completely irrational. You know, you, you will, the group will follow their norms, whatever the other sort of uh, circumstances, material kind of forces. Uh, um, so, so to say that you know ideology plays a big role is saying that a group is very you know, irrational 
whereas uh, to say that it um, um, you know, the, what's considered kind of the most rational you know perspective on you know group behavior is to emphasize these economic forces but the what the behavioral economics work did for me was to say that you know there's this kind of middle ground here where people can be you know there's a mixture you are rational part of the time but on some there are some blind spots in which we or, or some ways in which we tend as human beings to be systematically biased or or, or prone to um, prone to bias or, or pr pr prone to making rush rash decisions or letting emotions uh, carry us away and that sort of thing so that I think was the, that was the, the main sort of that was what the book did, did for me yeah and it, it, it really shows the importance of of branching outside our traditional literature and to, and to see what what other areas can uh, can add to our understanding um, of these these key issues that we're that we're looking at we're coming yeah. near, near the the end of the podcast here and i realize i haven't uh, touched on that final piece that influenced you uh, schneider's 1984 piece macro nationalisms the a history of the pan movements um where was this influencing your research um uh, from the research we've discussed or elsewhere yeah so that came in um in between capel and Ayeli. um and it um, it inspired the this idea of pan-Islamism. Uh, so his, 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 his Snyder's book is is about um, this sort of uh, these various types of pan uh, movements, uh, pan-Slavism uh, and, and and others. And what these have in common is that they they share many of the traits of uh, nationalist groups or, na or nationalist ideologies. They have, it, typically, the, the, the you know re, 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 talk about uh, a homeland, kind of a, a territory that belongs to the, the people. Um, yeah, the existence, the, the existence of a, a people that is bound by blood, um, um, uh, and um, often a worldview of siege, kind of a victim narrative of persecution worldview in which the people is systematically persecuted or, or, or humiliated by these evil outsiders who want to destroy the the, the nation so this is this was important uh, for me because um, it, it, it um, was what I was seeing um, I, I was seeing you know, this is 2002-2003 when I was studying Al Qaeda ideology intensively. I was seeing in Al Qaeda's rhetoric a lot of you know, uh, themes or ideas associated with nationalist rhetoric. Um, uh, the notion of a people uh, exemplified by the Ummah, except that the Ummah in this case was not. Um, limited to a nation-state, it was something transnational. But the way in which uh, Al-Qaeda spoke about the Ummah was very similar to the way, you know, uh, I guess the, you know, the, the Basques would talk about the, 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 the Basque uh, nation or, or any other national nationalist uh, uh, movement would, would do so. Similarly, Al-Qaeda's um, kind of worldview is this, was this one of siege. It was, uh, they would 
drawing a, you know, um, yeah, drawing up this worldview in which the Ummah is under attack on all these fronts in Bosnia, in Chechnya, in Iraq, in Palestine, everywhere, and it's all connected. It's part of one big conspiracy by the Jews and the Crusaders to weaken the Ummah. This is a type of, of this is a mentality or a narrative that's very similar to what you find in nationalist um, uh, in, in, the, in the rhetoric of nationalist groups. So you had this sort of weird thing. You had something that was transnational and yet nationalist at the same time. And the problem was that at the at the at, at the time, I really I didn't find any kind of way any sort of established ways of of, of grasping this because you had all this literature on nationalisms, but but it was all you know all assumed a kind of a, either a sub national you know, national national movement or one that matched uh, you know a, a nation state. There, there was very little work on the pan, pan pan movements, except for this one book, and it kind of reassured me that I was onto something. It was it was you know the the, the you know, the Isla, you know that these pan-Islamists were not the only ones who, who were kind of transnational nationalists. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 always satisfying to find a book that can uh, that that can really really spur you on and really make you realize, okay, I am onto something here. I'm not I'm not just going down a, a blind alley here. Um, yes. Yeah, and. Do you find that it still influences the way that you're that you're thinking, or does it have has your think has your research uh, moved on uh, to to the to other pieces that are that are influencing you more, or do you keep on going back to this book? Oh, and uh, no, I don't go back to it very much. It, the 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 main the main function was to sort of reassure me at a time when I was you know a, a young insecure PhD student. Uh, but it, it assured me on you know to, to pursue what I think was a very important idea, um, and uh, but but I, I would I still I think it's, it's the the book is is very good and it holds 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 up. Um, but what has happened also is that is that the the jihadi movement has changed, uh, and so uh, and this I describe in some other work of mine. It's hybridized, and so you no longer have these sort of pure Pan-Islamists. Now, most of the jihadi groups that you have are, you know, they have some hybrid rhetoric or hybrid ideology, um, where they they're angry not just at the evil non-Muslims who humiliate the Ummah, uh, but they're also very angry at the uh, at the um, uh, the apostate um, nominally Muslim rulers in 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 the Arab world. And they're also very angry at the Shiites, who they think are corrupting the religion, and they're angry at others. So it's kind of uh, so so the the, the salience or the relevance of kind of pan-Islamist theme has decreased. In the early 2000s, I would argue that Al Qaeda really was that that that, that, that this sort of pan-Islamist perspective really went a very long way in explaining what triggered Al Qaeda and its recruits. I mean that. That, that that was kind of what got, had got them going, but but the the movement has changed since since then, and and even Al Qaeda you know, went in a more what I, what I call revolutionary, and by which I mean anti-Muslim regime 
direction. So the so in a sense, um, th that map, uh, that, that sort of pan-Islamist map, doesn't no no longer matches the terrain in a way. Yeah, and and this is a, it's a, it's an important um, a more important thing for all researchers uh, to note, and is that we can't just look at these groups or these movements as being stagnant. We have to follow their evolution and be able to, our, our research has to be able to evolve with the groups and to be able to understand that. Um, and bringing this interview to a close, um, and you mentioned it there when you were talking about uh, the piece, uh, Predictably Irrational, you were talking about the uh, debates and the the challenges within terrorism research. How do you feel uh, the health of terrorism research is at the moment? Do you feel that it's stagnated, as uh, Sageman put forward, or do you feel that it's a, in a bit of a healthier state than that? Um, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, than, than Sageman. Um, uh, we've certainly come a, a very long way from the 9-11 Era, um, or the, uh, a lot has happened since in in, in the past uh, sixteen years. Um, the, the, the the field is is bigger. The field is less. Um, uh, it's more objective, but less biased. I mean, I think it's become much more empirical. People are less. Um, Inclined to sort of go with accepted wisdoms about certain things, and 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 we have a, a new generation of young people who are doing amazing uh, work, especially you know, empirically informed work. People who speak Arabic who are in the weeds, as we say, and follow the primary resources, know the primary resources, and something that we you know we, that didn't really exist uh, in the in the early 2000s. So all of the attention paid to terrorism and, and, and from policymakers and so on, terrorism studies hasn't really entered the academy, hasn't really been accepted by the academy yet. Things are a little bit better now than it used to be, but you, but most, for the most part, you know, the, um, the, the, the I would say that the, the center of gravity of the terrorism studies field lies outside of the academy. In, in 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 various institutes and think tanks and, and so on. There, there's phenomenal work being done, of course, by people in the in the academy, but there are few and far between. And um, if you look at, say, the you know the top U.S. universities, you will find very few terrorism specialists, people who do just terrorism. You'll find more people who do something else and terrorism, but very few um, specialists. And 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 those you find, people like Martha Crenshaw, are not. They're, they're sort of in somewhat peripheral roles and not, you know, um, uh, tenured uh, faculty. Uh, and so um, it, it still has a peripheral, it's still at the periphery of the academy. It's not, it's not been kind of um, uh, embraced by the mainstream disciplines. And this is, is, this is a problem. This is very important. This is a big problem because it, it perpetuates uh, a quality problem. What it, it, because it, it means that the best PhD students choose not to work on it because they know that if they work on terrorism, they're not going to they're going to be less likely to find a job at the end. And so you get a selection effect whereby you know most of the, the kind of the, the most brilliant PhD 
students don't don't do terrorism topics. So and and so you uh, uh, so um, that perpetuates a kind of a, a, a what you something of a reputation problem that the, that the field has for being you know not quite as rigorous as as uh, as as other you know subfields in say political science or something else. Um, so, so that that is a problem. The, 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 our inability to kind of to enter the you know, mainstream academy. The other the other uh, deep problem is that um, there's so much happening. <clears throat> it's kind of it's a very events-driven uh, topic. So, and what this does is that people are we, we're forced to move on to the next thing every month. Because uh, you, you, you want to be kind of reasonably relevant and, and have the air, the air and the and the and, and the funding of policymakers, you have to be, you have to know what's going on today. But there's so much going on, and so you have to, um, um, you have to kind of um, do a lot of, sort of, you know, immediate sort of empirical work. And what this does is that it leaves people with little time to digest. Um, the knowledge. Uh, there's, there's not enough work that goes back to uh, go, goes back in time and really kind of re and revisits cases and, and or, or or goes goes back to old cases and, and adds more and looks at it with new data and so on. We just move on from we we, we half digest one issue or, or topic and we move on to the next one because the events. In the world, forces us, force us to. That is a that is a big problem. Mm. Um, so I would, um, uh, I hope, I would kind of encourage people to, um, to to do more digestion. To not be afraid to kind of um, to to go back to older debates uh, or older topics. And often, what they will, what you will find, then is is that. The issue wasn't really solved, you know. The, uh, or, I mean, there's still an open debate there, or there's still lots left to do, and um, so 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 we have a long way to go on, on, on a number of issues because we have um, yeah. had 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 the chance to properly address them. Yeah, I I, I think that these are are vitally important messages and something that yeah we we don't do enough of. We don't take time to to take stock of what's happened, what do we know, how do we know it, let's have a look again and see if see if if a different perspective might give a different understanding to something that happened in the past. It's something that we, we definitely do need to take stock of. But Thomas, I, I've, I'd just like to, to thank you so much for giving up, uh, being so generous with your time today. I found it a really interesting uh, conversation of I would urge all of our listeners to go and read Thomas's research. There are links to the, the three pieces of his that uh, he referred to in today's podcast on our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C, T-E-R-C, to follow us on uh, Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, tweeted us with the hashtag Talking Terror. On that website, you can also um, 
find links to the pieces that have influenced Thomas' career. Thomas's career. I'd also urge you to go to Thomas's own website, uh, heghammer.com, where you can see other piece of research that he's he's done. Um, it's extensive and really really interesting work. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Jamie Murray, as always, for editing today's podcast. And today's researchers for the podcast were uh, Lisa Sukoff and uh, Maria Dumitrescu. I'd like to thank them both for their work. Um, be sure to listen back in next week, where I'll be sitting down for a talk with Professor Mia Bloom from Georgia State University about her wide-ranging research in relation to suicide terrorism, women in, in terrorism, and uh, her upcoming research with John Horgan about uh, children in terrorism terrorist groups. So once again, thank you, Thomas, for your time, and I'll talk to you all next week.